Connecting is not about perfection. It's about connection. You don't have to say things perfectly. You don't have to understand perfectly. Why? Because if you don't take the risk or be brave or daring to make a connection across a difference, you will always feel uncomfortable about that difference. It turns out you have to be uncomfortable before you can get comfortable with difference. And I know people don't like that, especially many of us who prefer to be perfect, but this is not a mistake-free process. If you are in the game of creating inclusion, you also have to be in the game of embarrassment. That was Verna Myers, cultural innovator, diversity and inclusion visionary, and the current vice president of inclusion strategy at Netflix. And this is Best Breakouts from the Conferences for Women, an audio series that offers timeless insights from our archives to help you advance at work and in life. Our world is more divided than ever. In this session, inclusive communication, how to go from well-meaning to well-doing, Verna Myers offers invaluable insights and tactical steps to help us reach across differences instead of giving into isolation and fear. It's a message that's more important than ever. Let's get started. I want to get started right away because I'm going to ask you to do as much work as I'm doing up here. I want to talk with you about three concepts when it comes to communicating effectively for inclusion. And that is, first of all, what do we mean by diversity? What do we mean by inclusion? And what do we mean by communication? You will know a lot of the answers to these questions, but I just want to make sure that we're on the same page. I think you heard I'm a recovering attorney. And some habits die hard, as in we must define our terms. So I'm going to do that. And then I'm going to talk to you about two things that I think can make a real difference. I call them the two no's. So let me get started really quickly on the concepts. One of the things that I want to make sure I emphasize in the room today is that diversity isn't only about difference. It's also about commonalities and that as we imagine what it feels like to communicate in a fluent way that creates inclusion, we have to recognize where the commonalities are and we cannot ignore the differences. It's what we call a both and. If you tell me we're all the same, I'm going to wonder what you're looking at. If you tell me that we are so different, I'm going to ask you, really? Because it is both things and Fluency is about recognizing both the commonalities and the differences. And it's about culture and it's about identity and it's about experience. So all of those buckets. And we're going to look at some aspects of each of those as we move forward. Now, the other thing that I think it's important to recognize is this idea, which I call the iceberg. And I don't think I made it up. A lot of this stuff is all derivative. But how many people know how much of an iceberg is underwater? You're going with 90? How many people going with 90? Okay, let's just say most. How about that? I think the science is seven, eight, whatever. The point is most of an iceberg is underwater. And by the way, I just came from Alaska last week and talking about diversity and difference and perspectives, right? So they said, oh, you know, nice to meet you. I hear you're from the lower 48. And then I thought, oh, this is brilliant. This is diversity. This is perspective, right? Because when you're down here, you don't feel like the lower 48, do you? But when you go up, that's a pretty accurate description. 
it's a long way to Alaska and they are sitting above us. So it's funny to note that we are also the lower 48. So a lot of icebergs and Alaska, and I was thinking about this concept of what diversity is. And so a lot of times we think diversity is the tip of that iceberg. It's what you can see. And a lot of what you can see is it's gender. It's race, or we think, or ethnicity and age. And we are starting to be wrong about even these things. Even though we think we know what gender is, gender expression and gender identity is suggesting maybe not as fixed as we thought. We think we know what race is. We can see these things and we can even be wrong about them. But one of the things that I am recognizing is that we are more than what people see. But I'm going to stop right here and tell people, let us stop the foolishness that we do not see difference. Can we agree? Someone said amen back here. Okay. Because look, I'm looking at you. I could try to pretend that I don't notice some things, but I'm thinking, girl. <laughs> right? You can just tell me, am I right here? Working with, okay. I would say young. I'm also, in my mind, I'm saying some kind of Asian thing is happening. Some kind of Asian thing is happening. That's how I think about it, right? What kind of Asian thing is happening? Am I right? Yes. Anything else happening in that category? No. Okay. If I am intellectually honest, I will know that when I see people, I sort and I have some thoughts about it. Don't be crazy like people in Boston. Sometimes when I'm getting ready to meet somebody that I don't know, I haven't met before, don't know what they look like, and someone is trying to explain, like maybe I'm going to meet them in a restaurant on Newberry Street or something like that. And they're like, well, you know, they do this and this and they look like, and then they, they go through this really like elaborate description. And then somewhere around there, because I'm a perceptive kind of girl, I go, are they black? And they're like, yeah, but I didn't think I should say that. You're like, really? Because that's kind of useful, right? Especially on Newberry Street in a restaurant, you know, I walk in, I'm looking for a black person. I've got to throw out like 90% of the people in a restaurant, right? So let's not be silly, right? So on the other hand, you've got to ask yourself about communicating when every time you say someone's name, you say, oh, and you know he's gay. Or, oh, she's Jewish. Like, and that's relevant in what way to our conversation? So these are skills. When is difference to be spoken about and when is it not? And when does it suggest something other than description is all very important. And we are more than what we appear because the lovely, and what is your name? Gwynny? The lovely Gwynny is more than what I can make up just by looking at the visuals. So diversity is about the tip. It's about the things that we can see. And it's about a lot more, in fact, the things we can't see. It's a composite of lots of different experiences, interests, identities, geographies, language, age, as Beth spoke about, thinking style, working style. Do you like getting up in the morning and do you brag about it? How many people are morning people? I am too. So I'm just going to talk about us. We have a superiority concept. Right? <laughs> and you know why I can tell, right? Because you say, you know, how you doing? And you're like, I'm fine. How are you? And you're like, oh, girl, you know, I'm fine. I ran five miles. <laughs> I filed a brief. I burped the children and I washed two loads of clothes. And it's, what is it now? 730? <laughs> right? Seriously, do we need you to go through all that? 
And one of the things that you will have to note is if you want to be inclusive around your communication, you got to stop acting superior about your one style of being. Because let me tell you, people who hang out late at night have a lot of value as well, right? Yes, exactly. All the nocturnal folks, let me see your hands. Yeah, exactly. You rock at night, right? So I just want to say that diversity has many dimensions. Now, how is inclusion different than diversity? And if you were in a small group of people, that wouldn't just be a rhetorical question. I would actually try to find some answers to that. But right now, what I'm going to do is give you a picture of where I graduated. I went back about four or five years ago, and they were doing this incredible 50 years of women at Harvard Law School. And it was so exciting. There, were, there was all these panels. And this one panel was the first women who had been admitted in 1953 to the law school. And it was fabulous. And I sort of expected them to say the things they did, like they were some professors who only called on them once a day. It was called Ladies Day. And that's not a good inclusion move, right? But that was sort of the intentional stuff. The thing that surprised me is that they said when they arrived at the law school, there were no bathrooms for the women. Now, some of you have heard that and some of you are like, are you kidding me? Outrageous. And yet one of the things that we talk about when I was sitting there, I was like, oh, that's it, right? Because if you have been invited to be the first in an organization and you arrive and something as basic as a toilet has not been provided for you, what you think? They're not feeling me. Yeah, you're not welcome. Do you think they did that on purpose? No, you're so gracious. I love that. <laughs> I think you're right. I think you're right. I don't think they did it on purpose. Why were there no bathrooms? They didn't expect any women. Okay, but now they finally fought and made the decision, and now they're coming. So you're talking about institutional setup, right? So there was an institutional setup which would have required them to do something different once they bring in difference. <sighs> the hard task around inclusion is if for a long time you've had an organization that has been shaped through historical and sanctioned exclusions, the fact that you come to an understanding that that's not all right and we should invite in lots of people of difference doesn't make it an inclusive environment. Because I would say in 1953, Harvard Law School finally had gender diversity. I would not say it had gender inclusion because what's the message? And in fact, what I would say is, oh, by the way, the women finally, they complained, right? And they said, look, it's not okay. We have to go to the restroom. It's not fair. We have to take exams and we'll miss class. And so they were like, mm, yeah, you're right. And they put a toilet in the janitor's closet in the basement of one of the buildings. And that's where they went to the restroom. Little by little, they felt stronger and stronger. They just started taking over the men's bathroom and just putting like a sign on there, woman in here, enter at your own risk kind of thing, <laughs> right? It's all the evolution of the people. But one of the things that I know is the reason why we miss how to be inclusive is because we haven't had to do so. And because we don't see what we don't know. So one of the most inclusive skills is to assume you don't know everything 
to become humble and to become thoughtful about where your blind spots are. And it's not even intellectual. You actually have to have a process. So for example, if the men at Harvard had said, for example, let's maybe have a focus group of women since we've never had women and see what it is that we might need to do. All he had to do was like serve some tea and bagels in the morning at the focus group. And you know how our bladders are, ladies. <laughs> so I was like, excuse me, but where's the restroom? And they were like, <gasps> put that on the list, right? <laughs> That's a process piece. That's a process piece. It's very simple, but if you don't do it, you will miss something. So I will say diversity is about counting and inclusion is about cultivating. And in particular, cultivating through communication for today's conversation. And it makes me think about, I don't know, I didn't ask you permission at first to take you back to middle school. For some of us, it was a difficult time. Some of us, we were doing all right. But I just look at this scene. I don't know where all the boys are. They're only three and they're dancing, right? This is what I see. And then you've got the girls. They're all waiting to get in. And remember the awkward thing in middle school where the girls are now bigger than the boys. And then it's a weird, ugly thing. You're all trying to hunch down so the boy will like you. And this is all a heterosexual lens, by the way. Any of those folks who weren't feeling that <laughs> during middle school already. Here's the thing. In organizations that have diversity, what I see is this kind of thing. I see that there are so many people who have been invited in, but they are not in the middle of the dance floor. They are not in the most interesting clients. They are not on the hardest work. They are not on the key committees. They are just hanging around the dance floor. In fact, I thought maybe I would just, for some of you, we belong together. You remember that? And you know yeah. That I'm I hope it's not bringing back too bad a memory, but why do you play with my it's heart? It's really difficult to create an environment where everybody feels not only can they dance, but they are being invited to do so. So when I talk about diversity, I say diversity is being invited to the party, but inclusion is being asked to dance. It's a very different sense of who you are and how valuable you are and what people care about and how it is that you're going to advance in that particular environment. And I'm not just talking about at work. It could be at your place of worship. It could be in your neighborhood. It could be in your school. It could be on your nonprofit board. Who is actually in the excitement of the organization? The main street. And that's what you're trying to do with communication. You are trying to give people the understanding that they are valued and included, that their ideas make a difference, that you want to know what they're thinking, that there's going to be equal access to opportunity, that they're going to be integrated and included. And it's very interesting to me. I don't know if you can see what this cartoon says, right? Bunch of dudes. And they're looking at four women and one says to the other, which one do you suppose is the alpha? They're looking at women and they're trying to find a man. <laughs> when I go into these organizations, I see them say, yes, we love diversity. We like the black people and the gay people and the young people. But really, they're trying to find the most baby booming acting millennial they can find. They're trying to find 
the whitest black person they can find, the straightest gay person, the most non-religious or Christian acting Jew. They are really looking for difference and hoping it's not going to make a difference. Why is that? Because they have understood what excellence looks like, what the tone of voice should be, what the dress should look like, what the hair should look like. And they have equated that with excellence. But what they don't understand is what they've been missing by not allowing the diversity that they went and spent all that money to get to actually change the way the place operates. So, yes, it's true that the people who built these organizations, maybe they were working 24-7. That's not always true. They're, now they're trying to say they were. It's like, you know, your mother was like, I carried the bucket up the hill for five miles. Yeah, really. But anyway, certainly right now, everybody's working really hard. And so you have a person who maybe has some other personal obligations they're trying to attend to. Some of it is around maybe being a mother to someone and in charge and, and responsible. And you are a manager and you are a morning person. And you're like, we're just going to come in here at 7.30 a.m. and get it going. Because the people who are the smart people, the reasonable people, the responsible people, the excellent people get in early. So you have all your meetings at 7.30 a.m. <laughs> you don't seem to notice that some people are in a coma in your meetings. You don't seem to understand that some, you see the sweat going down people's brow, trying to drop their kid off. They're like throwing their kid at the childcare situation so that they can run to make your meeting. And you're like, but look, I'm in charge and people should do what I want them to do. You know what, inclusion? You know what, include this. I said at 7.30. But if your goal is to get the best out of your organization and the people that you have invested and gone to recruit or that you found in the school or any of the ways in which you spent energy already to get those people there, how are you going to get the best out of them? So you're like, well, do I have to have my meetings in the evening because I'm not so great in the evening? I'm saying you probably need to rotate. I'm saying you probably need to figure out what works for other people and you need to kind of come up with something that will support the best from the group. So don't get narrow about the way you insist on communication. And ladies, if we're going to imagine, because that's our theme, a different way of making a difference in this world, let us not be so quickly to cop old ways, narrow ways of doing it just to be so-called successful because there is a sense beyond that narrow and we need to actually be able to exhibit that and bring that to people. Now, what about communication? Communication, in some respects, is really easy if you're talking to yourself. <laughs> communication is a two-way street, and by far, that's the most difficult thing, right? Because I'm up here, and I'm doing my best. I'm doing my best, but I have no idea to the extent to which I'm communicating with you because some of you are down here like this. Some people are trying to have the day to themselves, but their 14-year-old daughter keeps texting them? Why do we ever get them those phones? There are so many factors that are involved. You might be thinking about what are you going to wear tonight? I don't know. That's often my situation. A lot of communication is 
noticing that there's both encoding, that is what you are trying to send, and decoding, how what you are sending is being interpreted by the receiver. So if we look just at the encoding piece, you know, you've got your own history, your own culture, your own worldview, your own self-image, your sense of whether you need to deepen your voice in order for someone to believe that you have something to say or any of those, your history, the fact that the last person who supervised you was really mean and wanted you to talk really fast. And so you're talking really fast. This other person, it may not work with. So you've got your side of the ledger. Okay. You're sending a message and then it has to land and it's landing and being received by the other person who guess what? Also has a personal history and background and culture and circumstance. And then in the middle of all that, there's just static. It's whether the room is big enough or whether the lights are too dim or any of those particular types of things that are external to us that we have very little to do with as we're trying to communicate. And most of you know these statistics that most of our communication, not even about the spoken word. It's about posture and behavior and facial expressions, 55%, 38% around tone. That's why we get in trouble with emails. That's why we have all those emoticons like happy. I said that in a happy way. Can you please send that now? It's so hard. I mean, the use of exclamation marks, I really use way too many exclamation marks, but I basically want people to know it's all good. It's all good. I'm okay. But a lot of the communication is now happening across other modes and it's very hard to regulate or to express tone. So this is how it happens in a vignette. Take a look at this for me. Rose. A new Latino executive was at lunch with Nora, a white VP and Simon, a white influential senior executive in her department. Nora, Rose's mentor, thought it might be helpful for Rose's career to get to know Simon. At some point during the lunch, Simon leaned over to Nora and said, you're a real asset to our department. You're a twofer. If only you were a lesbian, that would be even better. Okay, now some of you are like, oh, that would just never happen. <laughs> I wish I made up stuff, y'all. I really did. Oh, okay, let me ask you about this. My man, Simon, what is he trying to do? He could be trying to make a joke, inartfully. Yes, compliment her. What else? Wants her to stay. Intimidate. Oh, diversity. <laughs> she thinks, hmm, he's trying to intimidate. He says, hmm, trying to get her to stay. We don't know, Simon. We don't know anybody's internal thinking. A lot of times what Simon is trying to do is he's trying to be inclusive. Now, what's the impact on Nora, do you think? She's the person who's actually tried to put this little lunch together. What is Nora thinking? <laughs> Glad she's not a lesbian. Um, she's also thinking, idiot, what else is she thinking? She's lost credibility. What else is she thinking? Get me out of here. I wonder what Simon thinks about me. What's Rose possibly thinking? Other than, oh my God, I've heard this before. What else? You're an idiot. Why did I take this job? What else? 
why did I get this job? Is it about those external factors or does somebody really think I have something to offer? Which it doesn't have to be an either or, by the way, folks, but it does start to make people wonder and worry. This is a situation that happens over and over again where often people have good, what we would call intent, but they have very little information about the impact. And this is the issue about communication because our intent is important, but we spend a lot of time when we make mistakes across differences talking about what we intended, right? You say something to someone and the, and you say, and they somehow make it clear that they don't appreciate it. And people go into the, that's not what I meant, but I didn't mean that, but you know, I love the gay people, right? That is what happens, right? So the impact is to make rows and to make everyone else feel like totally excluded. And maybe I've made a bad decision and oh my God, can I actually make it in this environment and so forth? And Simon's feeling like, I am doing something fabulous. So here's the other thing I want you to do, community of ladies and men. Let's call each other on this in the sweetest, loving way we can. Like Simon, not so much. Or Rose, I'm so sorry that that got said. What are you thinking? How would you feel? Rose is very tough. She's probably going to say, no big deal. I've heard it all before. Just keep going. But the fact that you actually say something, even when she says no big deal, is a big deal for her. She knows she's not alone in understanding that this was an uncomfortable situation. Can I get you all to do that? Can you just talk to your girlfriend about it? I mean, one time I said to my girlfriend, oh, somebody, I was describing a particular type of characteristic of a woman. And I was like, oh, and you know, I went to Barnard in New York and I was in a very large group of Jewish friends and so forth. And my friend who I was talking to was Jewish. And I was like, oh, you know, she was just a, and I used a three-letter word. And she was like, oh, no, no, no. And I was like, what? She goes, no, you don't get to use that word. And I go, and then I did the thing that people do. I was like, but I know a lot of them. And da, da, da. she was like, no. And she goes, I get to use that word. You don't get to use that word. I was like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Another really good communication skill. I'm sorry. Rather than that was not my intent. Okay. So you may have goodwill toward people. You may think that you are right. And this is that you're a good person, but you've got to appreciate what the impact is on the other person. That is that they might feel excluded. They might feel the pain. It may trigger lots of reactions based on lots of different things that have happened to them over a period of time. And it affects their sense of how well they can get along, advance and whether they belong. Inclusive communication is about the no's. It's not about the no-no's. So what happens sometimes is I do this work and people are like, fine, then I'm not going to say anything to anybody. <laughs> I'm going to do my best. Hi. And move away. I'm going to avoid. That is the most modern biased approach to difference that we have, which is that we just avoid people who we are worried about interacting with for fear that we're going to say the wrong thing. Am I speaking a truth here? Okay, good. I just want to make sure you're with me. So let me tell you the two no's I want you to think about as you're leaving this conversation and moving out actually into this larger community. One is know your own culture 
and also know the culture of others. And the second one is know your biases and learn to counter for them. So let me start with the know your culture and others. Here is the news flash. Everyone has a culture. I cannot tell you how many people are like, especially some of my white friends, they're like, you know, I wish I had a culture. I'm just so white toast. I'm just so like plain and normal and vanilla. I'm like, do not fear. You have a culture. Like, I love the Puerto Ricans. They have such a great parade. And the, the Indian food is so nice. And what about those saris they wear? You know, black people can dance. You know, it's. And I'm like, we don't need to worry about it. Everybody has a culture. Why? Because culture is just about how you got taught what things you value, what your mama said over and over again, what kind of language you use, how you communicate. All of those things are values and a way to shape the world and make sure that it makes sense so that you can proceed in that life. Everybody has a culture. What is yours? What did you learn? And what are you rejecting from what you learned? That's part of who you are as well. Now, look at this for a second. I want to pay attention to lens. Okay, here's the thing. Our culture is at least all of these particular characteristics, identities, experiences. When you do this work to be inclusive around communication, you're saying, what are the specific cultural lenses that I have and how have they shaped the world for me and my interpretation of others? So remember that table we were at when we talked about inclusion? There are as many cultures as at that table as there are people at that table. It is not like some people are showing up without their culture in a meeting or in a conversation. You have a culture and not only is it there, but it's causing you to sort and understand things differently and to assess value to people. So, for example, how many people come from those families where you cannot finish a sentence before someone else starts talking? Anybody from that family? Okay. So it's like a rocking, raucous, ruckus kind of like conversation. Now, how many people come from the family where people speak? There may be even like moments that go by. <laughs> no one says anything. Then someone may have a unique concept they want to share. They share it. How many people come from a family like that? Anybody? Just a few. <laughs> if we go around the world, we will see many different responses about how people interact, even sort of where you stand on the elevator. You are certain countries, people just like. <laughs> in the U.S., we're like, step back. <laughs> we need some space up in here, right? And so what's happening is if you're at the head of that table and someone's waiting to speak or someone's not interrupting or they're not being aggressive with their points of view or they don't say anything, what are you thinking if you come from the family where it's all about getting your views on the table? What might you be thinking? They have nothing to contribute. They're a little slow. I'm not sure why we hired them. They don't have a thought in their head. Or 
They're very bright, but I don't think they're going to actually be a leader. Somehow you've noticed that you lose the idea that there are lots of leaders doing all sorts of leading in all sorts of ways. And believe me, if you're in an underrepresented group, it's even more of a critical assessment about what you're capable of. Because if you're in a well-represented group, you'll see a heterogeneity in that group. You'll see some very aggressive people. You'll see some quiet people. Sam is a little quiet, but he's brilliant. But if Rose comes in and she's brilliant but quiet, it's a very different assessment sometimes. Not always, but sometimes. So you've got to say, what is my culture telling me about the way I'm communicating and the way other people communicate? So, for example, if you want to be multicultural in your communication and inclusive, you have to know that in some places when you're running a meeting, you have to tell people that you want to hear from them. You might actually do a rotation. Hey, Gloria, I haven't heard very much from you. Is there anything you want to share? Some people will speak, but only if you ask them. Some people, they want to know that you're going to ask them to speak. So if you talk to them before the meeting, you're like, I would really love for you to present. And they're like, okay, they can get ready. Some people, it will always be terrifying either because of personality or maybe their culture says that you don't confront people or that you certainly don't go beyond the person who is of a higher status, that you are deferential. In which case, you would need to go to that person and say, hey, look, I know you may not be comfortable with that, but in this particular situation, what I'm going to need you to do because I want you to succeed is to find a place where you can contribute at least out loud in one comment or two. Or you can say, by the way, everybody, if you didn't feel comfortable talking today, please send me an email one-on-one or drop something in this box. There are lots of ways to do it, okay? So one of the ways that you get a better understanding of yourself and others is something called expanding your dance card. Because I'm keeping that dance metaphor going. What I'm talking about is who do you socialize with? How do you become more aware of someone else's culture? How do you get comfortable? How do you connect? How do you decide who's the smartest? Who do you mentor based on what? Who do you share information with? This is the idea of expanding your dance card, which is to say, once you ask yourself those questions and analyze what your social and work circles look like, you purposefully and intentionally expand them. You often want to go to the person who you would not normally go to. Now, if we had more time, I would have you actually run around this room. Do you still want to do it? No, you guys, you don't have time. So sometimes what I do is just run people around the room and ask each other really awkward questions. <laughs> because the dance can sometimes be awkward. I want you to do something awkward today. I want you to imagine yourself differently today and walk up to somebody who you would not normally talk to and open your mouth and say, hey, how are you? It's not about perfection. Connecting is not about perfection. It's about connection. You don't have to say things perfectly. You don't have to understand perfectly. Why? Because if you don't take the risk or be brave or daring to make a connection across a difference, you will always feel uncomfortable about that difference. It turns out you have to be uncomfortable before you can get comfortable with difference. 
And I know people don't like that, especially many of us who prefer to be perfect, but this is not a mistake-free process. If you are in the game of creating inclusion, you also have to be in the game of embarrassment and vulnerability, as we learned this morning. But it is also rich with opportunity and relationship and perspective expanding. Now, the next thing I want to talk to you about is that second no, and that is about knowing your biases. Denial is not just a river and Egypt. Let's just say it together. I have biases. And I'm still a good person. And I'm still a good person. I'm a human. I have biases. That's how I was built. That's how my mind is built. It's built to lean in certain places, to put together ideas and concepts quickly so that I can move through the world. If I pretend I do not have biases, I cannot be inclusive. I cannot get on the dance floor of inclusion. I will inevitably make mistakes and not know how to correct them if I cannot see my own biases. I give you this as an example. For a while, a long while, most of the orchestras in the U.S. were mostly men. What happened is that they decided, for lots of reasons I won't get into, to do blind auditions. As soon as they did, five-fold increase in the number of women in orchestras. Now, do you think all of a sudden women just got brilliant, amazing in orchestras? No. It was that when they walked in that particular package onto the stage, something shortcut the intelligence of the person who was evaluating the talent. That's why we've got to do better at this, because we are losing talent every time our biases overtake our good intelligence and our ability to really assess talent, because we've got issues. What can I say? All of us do. They've actually got a study out recently that says, if you have a name that's hard to pronounce, you're less likely to be successful in the workplace. Now, some of this is going to track like historically excluded groups and people with names that are considered foreign and so forth. But it's also just like regular old Americans who have different names. Or we have a lot of bias around women. And let me show you exactly what I mean by this. Micro inequities. A lot of what we just saw in that little scenario, that was a micro inequity. It wasn't terrible. You can't go to EEO on that. You can't raise your flag about that. I can't believe what Simon said at lunch, but they're tiny slights. Sometimes they're intentional, mostly they're unintentional. I'll show you a couple of examples. Mistaken identity. You keep confusing the one Asian person for the other Asian person. One's Japanese and the other's Korean, but a lot of different countries, very different countries. Or surprised about people's accomplishments. I'll tell you more about that. Or all the things like, I don't think of you as gay. Kind of think of you as normal. Or just raise your hand every time you've heard anything like this. Catherine, I just can't see you as a mother. <laughs> and also someone, you just find out that they moved into town and, you know, maybe they're in your kid's school and you say, where'd you move? And you say, they say Roxbury or they say Dorchester or whatever. And they're like... Oh. Aren't you afraid to live in that part of town? Or more than that, just the conversation just stops. It just stops. 
it was all going well. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, thank you. Okay, bye. And so these are small little slights that happen over a period of time and they accumulate and they cause major strife and sense of exclusion. And people want to leave. They want to be environments where they're not having to deal with this. Or when did you move to the States to somebody who is U.S. born? And that often happens with Asian individuals, just like people just assume. The other thing that we hear a lot is, you do really well for a woman with children, or it's amazing. Or we hear, now she's got how many kids? Are we sure we want to promote her? Or I'm not sure she should go on that case because there's a lot of travel involved. In some ways, it's an attempt to be sensitive, but in another way, it's condescending. And it comes from a sense of superiority and from a lack of skill around inclusion, which is to say, hey, Sue, here's a great opportunity. Up for it? Any kind of accommodations we need to make? Any ways that I can support you and be successful in this? So I just wanted to, so I left that last one, is, which is, if you never do anything, <laughs> you've done a lot for a black girl. This is my girlfriend who was named the head of a major agency here in the Massachusetts area and her board, she was meeting them for the first time and her resume was presented and she was introduced and an older white man leaned over to her and said, you know, if you never do another thing for a black girl, you should be happy. You've really done a lot. And she said, hmm, gee, I wish I could have said what I really would thought. <laughs> she thought, you know, for a white guy, actually, you're not that impressive. But she couldn't say that. And so you don't even know the ways in which some of the ways that others communicate are creating a sense of scare and upset and fright because she's thinking to herself, who am I going to have to try to manage? And how am I going to lead in this organization who's somehow surprised and think I should be happy with the accomplishments I've already made? Because clearly they have a bias against me because of my background. So here's the thing. What I want you to do is to think about these several things. It's true. It's not a mistake-free process. So what if I say the wrong thing? One, be open. Ask open-ended questions, not are you from Asia? It could be like, tell me more about your background and your experience. And it could be, let me start with mine. Let me share who I am and then invite you to share who you are. Don't make assumptions, okay? You want to treat people as individuals. You want to know that they have group identities. You want to know that they have certain proclivities or customs or cultures and so forth. And you don't want to assume that each individual is going to be some kind of stereotypical understanding of their group. So you have to work and engage. Stop pretending that you know. I call this the same step. Stop pretending that you know. Apologize when you make mistakes. Understand that mistakes are part of the work and don't use it not to further engage. So keep engaging. That's the first thing I want to do. Small moves matter. Saying hello to people, sometimes so basic. Don't look them up and down. Say hello. Give them a smile. Say thank you, especially to the people who are not the ones who are above you, but those who are also helping you to succeed, who may be your supervisees. Make connections with people who are on the more margin. Look around that dance floor, around that party, and see who's on the wall and invite them in to the middle of the floor. Get people's names right. Work on it. It makes a difference. People feel respected when you do that. Learn unthreatening ways to solicit views. 
which is what do you think about this? How could we do this differently? Share information about how to access resources. Some of my best friends who've gone much further along in this walk have often looked back to say, you should know about this opportunity. Rotate opportunity. That's the only way that you can make sure that your biases are not corrupting your decisions. Speak about the success of people who those who many people may assume are not as good because they happen to be an underrepresented or historically marginalized group. In particular, you have to remember that you have cultural identities, that it's shaping who you are, and you need to be self-aware. A lot of example from my white friends will say to me, I don't really think of myself as white. And I'm like, it's okay. <laughs> I kind of noticed you were white, but it was, it's all right, you know? But if you want to be, this is only if you want to be inclusive, you have to notice that whiteness is a thing. And it's been a thing and it has attributions to it. And you want to understand it and you want to understand maybe not how you think, but how other people might think about you so that you can create the comfort and the inclusion. You have implicit biases. Go looking for them. Lean into them. I've given you some handouts that have steps that you could follow and look at. If you didn't get them, we may have run out of them. They're bookmarks. And it's not just my pictures grinning. On the back of it are actual steps that you can take. I mentioned this already. Don't use mistakes to disengage or to avoid. This is a journey. We are going to be doing this for a long time. The culture that we took in, the understanding that there's some groups that are better than other groups and that there are some people who are more dependable or some people who are more moral. We got that. It's wrong. We don't believe it. But somehow it's still in how we often sort, especially when we do it quickly. Now, I'm going to tell you one story so that you know I am not only Miss Diversity, okay, so that you can leave here knowing that I, too, struggle you know, I fly a lot and I was flying in a plane recently and the sound of a woman's voice came over the PA system. And I was like, oh, female pilot, it's so exciting. You know, we are making progress, women in the air. Okay. And then a little bit later, it started getting bumpy during the flight and a little turbulent. And I was like, oh, I hope she can drive. <laughs> Miss Diversity Consultant. Okay. Let me explain something. When things get tough or tight or risky or bumpy, we often will lean to a bias. I know women who can drive. I know men who can't drive. And yet somewhere I got taught that when you have a big, fast moving machine, you want a man. I have never, ever, and it's been turbulent and bumpy a lot. And I've never thought to myself, I hope that male person up there can drive. Never question competency through the lens of gender. Never thought, oh, he's awfully reckless. Boys are reckless. I don't know if I want him driving me. No. So where does that come from? It comes from old stuff. So this is a journey. I wanted to say, I want you to think about, I don't know if you can remember how long this has been, when you've been at a great party and everybody's feeling it and the music's just right and everybody's on the floor. It is full with energy and creativity and possibilities. And so as we leave today, I want you to imagine what it would mean to know our culture, understand others, counter our biases and reach out beyond our comfort to create inclusion. If you can remember 
then I think you will understand the power of a full dance floor. Thank you so much. You just heard from Verna Myers, the vice president of inclusion strategy at Netflix, cultural innovator and best-selling author of What If I Say the Wrong Thing? To learn more about Verna and her work, please visit www.learning.vernamyers.com. And to further your learning on diversity, inclusion, and systemic racism, and what you can do in the workplace to impact change, please visit the Anti-Racism Resources website, curated by the Conferences for Women at www.conferencesforwomen.org backslash anti-racism. Thanks for listening. We hope you found the session helpful, and we invite you to tune in for more best breakouts from the Conferences for Women. <laughs>